I want you to imagine that someone were to ask you, prove to me from the Bible that Jesus was God. Prove to me from the Bible that Jesus is God. Where would you go? Where would you turn? Where would you take them? You should think about that question because, you know, sometime someone might ask you that question. If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and knock, if you've ever been in a conversation with someone who's Mormon, if you went very far in a discussion of faith with them, you would come to that conflict, to that fork in the road. A Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon might try to tell you we believe the same things that you do and then ask them this question, do you believe that Jesus is very God, of oh, very God? And you would find very quickly there is a divergence. There's a fork in the road. They don't. So where would you take them in the Bible to prove that Jesus is God? Well, one idea, I might take them to John chapter 20 where Thomas, the, doubty, the doubter, the one who wasn't so sure that Jesus truly had been resurrected, confronts Jesus face to face. And Jesus lovingly and graciously says to him, Do you see my hands? Put your hand in and feel the wound in my side. It's me. I'm alive. I'm a real, I'm a real living being. And what does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. Who does he say that to? He says it to Jesus. And does Jesus act like every other godly person when someone falls down and worships them? What does every other human being say when they're worshipped as God? At least if they're God followers. They say, get up! No! I'm not God! Don't worship! Does Jesus say that? No. He accepts when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus was very God, a very God, and you can prove that from the Bible. But let me ask you a second question. What if someone came to you and said, prove to me that Jesus was actually human? He really was human. Because it's not as, as, as significant in our day, but in years past throughout the history of the Christian church, it was far less believable to many that Jesus was God. They could accept that. They could accept that he was divine. What they could not accept was that he was human. Oh, he may have appeared to be human, they would say, but he was not truly human. Oh, he, he may have been a, almost a, a phantasm, a kind of fiction. Yes, he appeared to have a body, but he could not have been truly human. And so the question for you this morning is, if someone came to you and said, prove to me from the Bible that Jesus was truly human, what would you say? Where would you take them? Well, there are a number of places that you could take them. But I want to suggest to you one place, a very good place to start with that question, is exactly where we are this morning. Take them to Gethsemane. Take them to the place of Jesus' agony, to the place of his suffering, that not one of us, even in the greatest depths of our emotional distress and turbulence and trouble, not one of us 
have experienced what he experienced on that Thursday evening in the garden. Now, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open to Mark chapter 14 as we work continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark together through this passage. And, and it, all, it feels like we're on holy ground here. It feels like we're in a sacred place. It feels like I'm going to be trying to explain mysteries to you that I don't fully understand. It feels like I'm going to be asking you to come into an understanding of Jesus' humanity that I have no hope of adequately conveying. And so let's all of us inwardly and privately ask the Holy Spirit's help this morning to say, God, we're on holy ground today. We're opening the curtain on mysteries that we cannot possibly fathom, that Jesus Christ was very God of very God, and yet, as that old catechism says, he is very man of very man, both God and man. And look with me at verse 32, will you, of Mark chapter 14? Verse 32. After Jesus has left the upper room where he has taught his disciples and given an example of service to his disciples and shared a final Passover that was transitioned into the Lord's Supper, into the communion ceremony we're going to be having later this morning. And after they've sung a hymn, we looked last week at him being the singing Savior in face of everything that he was going into, he could still sing praises to God. And after verse 27 through verse 31, where he is predicting, he is prophesying the betrayal and the abandonment of his disciples. Don't worry, we're not skipping that. We'll come back to that next week when we focus on the disciples and their treatment of Jesus. Now in verse 32, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. Now you wouldn't really know maybe what, what the significance of this word is. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? It means an oil press or an olive press. Do you remember where they are geographically? They are, they are outside of Jerusalem now. They are headed toward the Mount of Olives. That's because there were olive trees that were all over that place. In fact, if you were to go to the Mount of Olives today, you would find olive trees. And there was here a private garden, likely an enclosed garden, that Jesus must have known the owner, and the owner allowed Jesus to regularly go to this place, perhaps to teach his disciples, to find a place of rest outside of the city, perhaps even to sleep in. At times, it wouldn't have been uncommon, I understand, for Passover visitors to find a place to sleep outdoors. And so this was a place we know that Jesus regularly went to this garden, to this garden of Gethsemane, literally the olive press. Now, why was it called an olive press? Because presumably olives were pressed there. You can imagine the, the oil that would be squeezed out, likely by machinery of some kind. They would be squeezed out. The oil would be taken from those olives. It was a place of pressure. It was a place of affliction for those olives. And it's fitting. Because tonight in this garden, Jesus would feel the pressure. He would be squeezed 
he would be placed under the greatest imaginable human stress. Now notice what he says to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. So he takes to his disciples as perhaps they're out at the enclosure, the gate perhaps to this garden. He says to his disciples, you sit here, I'm going to go pray. And But then notice in verse 33, and he takes with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And we'll talk more about that, but just notice, he leaves eight disciples perhaps at the gate or just inside the garden. And he says to three of them, you come here. Now let me ask you this, have you seen any other place as we've studied in the gospel where Jesus identifies, calls out these three and invites them to come with him while the other disciples remain behind? The Mount of Transfiguration. I I don't think that's an accident. I just want you to think about this. What did Jesus reveal to Peter, James, and John? on the Mount of Transfiguration when, he's, when his whole being was changed in front of them and they were almost blinded by the glory, the Shekinah glory of God that was radiating out from his inner being. What was he revealing to them? His divinity, that he was God. He, it's, it's as if for a brief moment in time, his earth suit faded away and the glory of God that was in him just shone out. This is God. Those three disciples got to see it. Is it any wonder that in the evening of his greatest human emotional agony, he said to those three, as it were, you've seen my divinity. Now come see my humanity. Come. He calls out those three. What does this story tell us about who Jesus, our Savior, is? As I've already said, it shows us that he was fully human. He was made from the same stuff that you and I are made of. But it shows us something else that I want to suggest to you. In that revealing to these three disciples and revealing to us his humanity, he also was revealing to us his holiness. Because in his suffering and in his agony and in his great distress, without sinning, he aligned himself perfectly in holiness with the will of his Father. And I want to look at those two things a little bit more this morning. The fact that on the one hand, he reveals himself to be fully human, And on the other hand, he reveals himself at the same time to be fully holy. And that will be our title for the message this morning. Fully human. Fully holy. Fully human. Made from the same stuff. Feeling the same kinds of things that you and I do feel and would feel in that exact same circumstance. And yet, fully holy in the way he responds in the hour of his greatest Agony, fully human, fully holy. I want to look at three aspects of his humanity together this morning. First of all, I want to look at his suffering humanity. His suffering humanity. Now, it is a truth, isn't it, that to be human is to suffer. We know that. We experience that. We live that. 
You have suffered. I have suffered. There is not a person that can say, I am immune from human suffering. You say, of what kind? Well, think of physical suffering. Think of the pain you experience when you are injured, when you stub your toe on the couch, when you, ex when you have a, a sickness in which you are bedridden in. You suffer because you are human. You suffer emotionally. You suffer emotionally when you have a burden placed upon you that feels too heavy for you to bear. You suffer even when you deal with the very common experience of something called stress. It feels something bearing, loading down upon you. What is, what is stress, really? Stress is when there's more going on than your mind can process in the moment. You're not able to put it in logical sequence and order. All it feels is like it's heavy and you are not able to bear up under it and so you are stressed. You are pressured. To be human is to suffer. And to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is to see him experiencing this suffering in entirely human ways. Here's one thing. Notice his anticipation. Notice his anticipation. He takes with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Now, let's think for a minute about that. Here, here's what those, we don't, we don't speak too much like that anymore, to be sore amazed. It literally just means to be very troubled. It means to be just absolutely almost at your wits end. It, it, it actually has the idea of being astonished, almost surprised. Like if you were to come upon a situation that you weren't entirely expecting and suddenly it hits you like a ton of bricks and you say, I, I, I wasn't ready for that. That's really what Jesus was experiencing. It, it was almost like... I. I wasn't ready for this kind of weight. But also it says that he was very heavy. This is the idea of being utterly distressed. Utterly uh, troubled. I mean, just at, 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 at core, at your, at your very center, you are in agony. You are distressed. It's not, it's not right. You feel that heaviness that graveness inside you. Jesus is experiencing this. Now you say, what's going on here? Jesus was looking ahead and he was anticipating something horrible. That's really what was going on here. And, and, and I think some of you have experienced this. If any of you are mothers, would you think of the first time you had a child? and you are nine months pregnant, and for nine months you know that you are going to experience the horror of labor. And you know it's coming. And you're aware that it's coming. And then the first contraction hits. And the second contraction hits. And the third contraction hits. And you know you are in labor. There's nothing really that you can do to prepare for that, can you? Moms, honestly, I clearly speak with great experience myself. <sighs> clearly an expert in this subject. No, but seriously, seriously. There's a difference between knowing that something is coming 
and then seeing it happening right in front of you and saying, Whoa! Did Jesus know that his hour was coming? You better believe it. He knew, and he was ready for it. And then it started dawning on him. It's here. It's here. And he was shaken to his human core. He was utterly astonished at what he was experiencing. Wow. Jesus uses that same analogy of labor in John 16 in verses 20 through 22 when he says, your sorrow now is like a woman going into labor, but don't worry, there's going to be joy coming. And in the same way, Jesus now is experiencing the first labor pangs, if you will, of this experience he was going to have. And he was utterly cast down. This anticipation, this astonishment. You say, what was this? What was at the core of it? Well, let's, let's really think about that. We really need to think about that for a minute. What caused Jesus to be so troubled? Notice what he says in verse 34. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Don't miss that. It is exceeding sorrowful. The Greek word here literally means to be ringed around with sorrow. To be surrounded with sorrow. And I wonder, I, I don't wonder, I know. I know some of you know what that is. I know that some of you know what it is to be in a fog of sorrow. Every way you look, you see nothing but heartbreak. Every way you look, you see nothing but darkness. You are like a plane in the middle of dark clouds, and you don't know which way is up, and you don't know which way is down, and you have no idea how long it's going to last. All you know is that you are in a fog. You are in a cloud of complete discouragement and indeed approaching despair. Jesus said, I am so sorrowful. I am so sad right now. I could die. You see what he's saying? My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. The British pastor Alexander McLaren had this wonderful poetic phrase. It, he is here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus. He's there in the oil press. And Alexander McLaren says, it was as if he's saying that one more turn on that screw in the oil press would literally kill him. He was that sad. One more turn of that screw and he would have died. Amazing. Now, what led him there? What was he anticipating? You say, well, it may have been that he was anticipating his, his physical death. The lashes on his back, the crown of thorns on his head, the nails in his hands and in his feet, the hanging on that cross until likely he would be suffocated. That awful, agonizing, excruciating death. That's what he was looking at and, and turning away from and leading to the greatest possible sorrow toward. And I would say, well, that certainly would be part of it, but that doesn't explain even close to what he went through. I heard one pastor say, he said, there were two other people who were crucified with Jesus. Do you think that night, the night before, this same night, they were sweating, as it were, drops of blood? Do you think they were on their face in the garden, agonizing? Strong crying and tears, as Hebrews 5 says, with strong crying and tears, talking to God about it? 
I don't think so. And in fact, throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been people who experienced this kind of physical agony, torture for the cause of Christ, and they went into it with joy, and they didn't even utter a word in the middle of it. They took it. They endured it without this. It wasn't the physical suffering that led Jesus to this place. And it certainly wasn't alone the social aspect that led Jesus here. Don't, don't, don't minimize Jesus' suffering. What did he do when he was going to pray? He took three of his closest friends. He wanted them to participate in it. He, he had the natural human desire to be supported and to be surrounded by those who loved him. You come with me. You experience part of this with me as my God, as my, as my friends. And he experienced them sleeping when he revealed his deepest agony to them, they fell asleep. And then they later were to betray him, uh, or uh, his friend Judas to betray him, his other disciples to flee from him, his friend Peter to deny that he knew him. Oh, there was social suffering that Jesus experienced, but it was not, I believe, what caused this kind of agony to fall on his soul, totally surrounded in darkness. What was it? It was spiritual. It was the spiritual suffering. And why do I say that? Because as Paul tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians, he says that God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Even though Jesus knew no sin, the one who had never sinned, the one who was repulsed by sin, who had the very holiness of God, was looking ahead at the prospect of becoming sin. As if you were to look at him as a human being and not say that he had committed sin, but that he was sin. What would that have done to his soul? I am going to become what I hate. The book of Galatians, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He looked ahead within a span of 24 hours. Not only would he become sin, he would be made a curse. He would be accursed from God. Again, let that sink in for a moment. The one who from eternity in the past had known only the love of God, only the approval of God, only the sweetest fellowship and communion with his Father, now he would become a curse. God truly, in that hour, would in a sense forsake him the one who would be the sin bearer. My God, my God, he said on the cross, why have you forsaken me? You see, it was that that Jesus couldn't possibly stomach. It was that that the human Jesus looked ahead to and, say, and said, God, literally anything but that. Why? Because what Jesus was looking ahead to in the Garden of Gethsemane was not merely physical pain, was not merely social abandonment. It was hell itself. 
That's what Jesus knew he would be experiencing on that cross. And that's why he was astonished. Because the enormity of what he would do fell on him in that garden. And he said, oh God, anything but that. It was because of that that he said, if there were one more turn on the screws of this sorrow, I'd be dead. It's why he came and fell flat on his face in that garden and cried. Yes, yes, he suffered that night. He suffered agony. And he suffered it for you and for me. Now, is it, is it any wonder to us when Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched, emotionally touched, resonating with the feeling of our infirmities? You say, oh, I've, I've been in dark places, pastor. I've been in the darkest emotional places. And, and Jesus says, and when you're there, remember me on my face in the garden. I've been there too. And now I'm sitting right next to you. I'm feeling what you're feeling when you go through those dark hours. That's what your Savior is. He is a high priest who went to the very darkest of nights, the darkest night of the soul, so that when your soul is feeling dark and it's feeling discouraged and it's feeling heavy, you know that your Savior and your friend felt the exact same things. And my friends, if I can say soberly, even worse, even worse than the darkest nights of our soul. It was a suffering humanity that he reveals to us in this Garden of Gethsemane. But even beyond that, friends, it was a submitted humanity. It was a submitted humanity. And it is here where we are particularly, I feel, on sacred ground. Because I want you to notice what Je how Jesus responded to this suffering. Notice in verse 32, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall, what? Pray. In the darkest night of his soul, Jesus knew, I need to pray. And notice... He says in verse 35, it says, And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour. He goes on to say later, he says, Take away this cup from me, he asks his father. The hour and the cup. Those are two things that are simply saying exactly what we've already mentioned. The hour was the hour of his separation from his father of him becoming the sin bearer for us and he says father if it's possible just let this hour just slide by let me avoid it if it's possible and then he looks at that cup the cup of God's judgment the cup of God's wrath the cup of our sin if you will and he says to his father take away this cup from me if it's possible, take away this cup. 
Now, now notice something about Jesus here. Notice about even how he's praying. You need to understand, the, the, the typical Jewish way to pray was standing. And it was not only standing, it was oftentimes with hands stretched toward heaven. In fact, Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 2 of men praying and lifting holy hands. That was a, a very Jewish thing to do, to pray with standing up and, and uplifted hands. And now, how is Jesus praying here? On his face. Utterly in agony. Like you when you fall on your bed or you fall on the floor and you just feel the greatest weight. Jesus on his face crying out to his Father in prayer. Notice his request here. Notice what he says. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Now, what is he saying there? What is he asking God in prayer? He's saying this. He's saying, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way I can atone for the sins of humanity other than this path of being separated from you, of experiencing hell itself? Now, we, this is again where we are entering a mystery we cannot fathom and I can't explain. But do you understand what Jesus is saying there? He is saying that his human desire is different from what he knows his Father's will is. Do not struggle with this. This was not rebellion. It was not sin. It was not a conflict, if you, if you will, between what God wanted and what Jesus ultimately wanted. It was not. It was nothing of the kind. It was revealing Jesus' humanity. Because this was, a le it was an entirely legitimate desire. Was it a legitimate desire for Jesus to say, Oh, not to become sin! I hate sin! To become cursed from God? Of course it was legitimate for Jesus to desire that. And do you know in the same way, you and I can experience all kinds of legitimate desires that we take before God in prayer and we say, God, you know what my desire is here. It's entirely legitimate. Like what? Like when your dearest one comes and tells you, I've gotten a diagnosis and it's cancer and it's not looking good. And you go before God and you say, oh God, you know my desire is out of love. My desire is for this person to be delivered from their cancer. Oh God, do it. And you know and maybe you've experienced God sometimes saying, but that's not my will, child. It's not my will. It's, is it wrong for you to ask, consistent with your legitimate and rightly ordered desires? Is it, is it right well, it was right for Jesus to come before his Father and say, God, you know my desire. You know that if it's possible, make another way. It was right for him. And why was it right for him to pray like that? Because of exactly next what he said, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. 
Not what I want. That's not ultimately my desire. You know my desire. It's a legitimate, it's a human desire. And yet it's not about what I want, Father. It's about what you want. And that's how he submitted himself to his Father. He said, God, ultimately it's not about what my human, my legitimate, lawful human desires are. God, it's about what you want here. And he won the victory. And friends, there is such wonderful truth that we don't have time to get into in depth here today, but so much truth about how you and I should pray. Do you know God wants you to bring your legitimate human desires before him? Oh God, you know what my desires are. God, you know I don't believe these are sinful desires. These are wrong desires. I believe they're motivated by love. I believe they're motivated by a, by, by, by a, by a care and concern for someone else. Oh God, I'm bringing these desires before you. That's good. It's right to pray like that. Jesus prayed like that. As long as the very next thing out of your mouth can be nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's ultimately not what I want, God. But ultimately, I want to align myself with what you want. So God, show me what you want. Help me submit to what you want. Help my desires to be like your desires in this situation. You know, friends, if we prayed like that, if our prayers were not only the expression of our legitimate desires to God, even with great emotion, in great intensity, but they were ultimately aligning themselves with the will of God. What a wonderful Christ-centered prayer that would be. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, what motivated this kind of submission to his Father's will in that it reveals itself in Jesus' prayer? Will you notice with me in verse 36? And he said, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. You need to understand something about that word Abba. You may have heard it preached before that that word is like the word we would use Daddy today. Daddy. I, I don't know that there's great evidence for that, honestly, as, as just as a linguistic matter. But it, there is absolutely evidence for this. That word Abba was a common word, a kind of intimate word for referring to your father. It was the kind of thing that you would say, that's my dad, that's my Abba, that, that's, that's my father. It, it, it was not a distant, removed term like father. No, it was not that. It was, it was the way you talked about dad. And, and I just want you to think about this for a moment. When Jesus is in the garden and in his greatest emotional suffering, he comes to God and he says, Dad, Abba, not, not distant, but close, Father. You see, what sustained Jesus in this time of emotional darkness? It was that he knew who his father was to him and who he was to his father. He was submitted to him because he could truly say, my father knows best. You see, there is so much we should learn from children in this. If you have little children, what's the first thing that kids do when they stub their toe? They run to mom. They run to dad. Not away. 
What happens when something confronts them as scary and as, and, as, and as astonishing and surprising? Do they run away from dad or do they run to him? They run to him. Why? Because dad can solve this. Mom can make this feel better. And how often when we're confronted with emotional darkness in our own life, with astonishment and trouble, when we're in the fog of confusion and difficulty, do we find ourselves running away from God? Not running toward Him in prayer and saying, Dad, you can fix this. Why? I, I wonder how often it is because we just lose faith that God knows best and that He actually cares about you. We lose faith that God is the one who knows the plans that he has for us. He knows what we need to draw closer to him. You see, friends, so often we fail in these hours of discouragement and distress because we lose faith that he is our Abba Father and that he has wonderful plans for us and that he knows what is necessary to accomplish them. Oh, if I could just say one thing from Jesus' example here today, I would say whatever fog you're in today or whatever fog you will walk into this week, may it drive you to your Abba Father in prayer and never away from him in unbelief. Jesus showed us this way, and in it he submitted himself entirely to what his father's purpose was, what his will was, not what Jesus' own legitimate human desires were. It was suffering humanity. We see submitted humanity. And then finally, and just briefly, it was sin-bearing humanity. You say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? I want us to step back for a minute and say, why was Gethsemane necessary why was it necessary for Jesus to experience this kind of suffering, this kind of emotional agony that would drive any one of us to our face to the point of death? Why? And I think we need to step back for a moment and look at the big picture. You see, friends, to our human forebears, Adam and Eve, in a garden, they looked up to heaven and said, not your will be done. My will. And humanity fell into sin and a separation from God. And now here in Mark chapter 14, in another garden, when confronted with this kind of human desire, the second Adam, Jesus, said, Father, not my will, not my will be done but yours, yours be done. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam gloriously succeeded. And this conflict here in this garden was necessary, if you will, to qualify Jesus to be our sacrifice, to be our sin bearer. You say, where do you see that? It's in Hebrews chapter 5. And you can turn to it now if you'd like, or I can just read it for you here. But you need to understand what Jesus prevailed in, in that garden. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Listen to this together. 
as we close. It says, who, speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, of his humanity, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. What's he talking about? He's talking about Gethsemane. That's what he's referring to here. Jesus offering up prayers to God through strong crying and tears. The one who could save him from that spiritual death that was awaiting him. And it says here, and, and he was heard in that he feared. In that he submitted himself reverently to his Father. God heard his prayer. And notice this. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Do you know what Jesus needed to learn in that garden? He needed to learn obedience. You say, I thought he always was obedient. He was he needed to learn this obedience. You say, I don't understand. No, it's this. It's every time that Jesus was confronted with this step, there was a sense in which he knew and was ready to be obedient, but God was putting in front this agony and this suffering and says, will you obey here? And that Jesus needed at that moment to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Any of you who are who are, uh, do physical exercise, you lift weights and your muscles are stressed and your muscles are strained and you get that weight up and then what happens the next time? You put a little more weight on and once again your muscles have to obey and get a little more weight up. What are you learning? You are learning, in that sense, obedience. Your muscles are learning to obey your command to lift that weight. And in the same way, Jesus was learning obedience in that garden. And he fully passed the test. Now notice this in verse 9. Verse 9 of Hebrews 5. And being made perfect, complete in his obedience, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He became the author of salvation to all them that obey him. Friend, what was going on in that garden in Jesus' suffering? He was learning obedience so that in his perfect obedience he could offer you eternal salvation by taking your sin on him on that cross and offering you his perfect obedience. As we close this morning, friends, I just want to ask you this question. As you look at Jesus in that garden, as you see him on his face in the greatest emotional agony that any human being has ever known, do you see in him the author of your eternal salvation? Do you see him there as mentally becoming prepared to die in your place, to experience the agonies of hell on your behalf, to take your sin and become that sin so you could be forgiven, to become a curse for you so that you would never be cursed by God, but only experience his eternal blessing. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be fully human? Because only 
in being fully human and only in perfecting obedience as a human could he be your perfect sin bearer and sacrifice. Fully human, fully holy. That is our Savior.